Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Oh, Jimmy. Everybody, this is Jimmy Crane, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, and we're sponsored by Hotel Lincoln. Now, the next time you find yourself here in the city of Chicago and you're looking for a cool boutique hotel that's close to everything, right around the corner from Second City, across the street from the Lincoln Park Zoo, and minutes away from Michigan Avenue, then check out Hotel Lincoln. It's not only pet-friendly, it's improviser-friendly as well. And if you mention Improv Nerd when you call up for a reservation or type in Improv Nerd on their website, you'll get 18% off your stay. All you have to do is mention Improv Nerd. Hotel Lincoln, the official hotel of Improv Nerd. And if you want to study with me, Jimmy Corrine, and my award-winning improv classes here in Chicago, The Art of Slow Comedy, November 4th, I will be starting my Level 2 Art of Slow Comedy class, Guts, it's called, and we focus on building solid two-person scenes. Uh, for more information, just go to my website, my slick new website, at jimmycorrine.com. I have some really exciting news for you, especially if you want a bigger career in improv. On October 28th, I will be releasing my latest book, The Inner Game of Improv, Five Steps to Getting a Bigger Improv Career. If you think you're one of those improvisers that feel like, I'm stuck, I'm frustrated, I'm not getting what I want in improv, and you think the solution is running off to another class or doing another show, you may be wrong. Pick up a copy of the inner game of improv. It's only $3.99, it's a very short read, and it's going to help you to have the career you've always wanted to have in improv. It's going to be released on October 28th as an ebook on Amazon and as a PDF on my website. Great, we've got all the advertisers out of the way, and now what you've come to hear, and that is another episode of Improv Nerd. And of course, We've got a great one for you. When do we not have a great one? Really, I want you to just think about it. We always have a great episode of Improv Nerd, and this one is no exception. This is actually a special episode uh, we recorded here in Chicago, and our guest today is Joel Murray. Now, you, jo- you know Joel from Mad Men, Shameless, Dharma and Greg, Still Standing, and tons of other TV and film credits. He's been out in Los Angeles for 25 years, and before that, he was a member of the Second City, where he did two main stage reviews, and he studied with Del Close at the Improv Olympic, now I.O. Chicago. He grew up in a suburb outside of Chicago called Wilmette, uh, and he's also part of the Murray brothers, the Murray family, but the Murray brothers, Brian Doyle Murray and Bill Murray, are his older brothers. We talked to Joel about growing up Irish Catholic in a big family. He was the youngest of nine kids. How he started acting when he was in the third grade. We also talked to him about working with Del Close. What it was like to live in an apartment next to Chris Farley when they were both on the main stage at Second City. We talked to him about his brother Bill and his brother Brian Doyle and how he got the part on Mad Men. This episode is a straight-on interview. There's no improv in this. Uh, 
we were lucky to get Joel when he came into town as the Chicago Cubs uh, beat the St. Louis Cardinals. So I really want to thank him because we've been trying to, I've been trying to get Joel for a couple of years now. And he was a guy when I was starting out in improv uh, who was part of Barron's Barracudas uh, at the Improv Olympic at the I.O. And uh, he, that was the team we were looking, we, we, we looked up to. Uh, and they were one of the first teams that, that worked on the Herald uh, as Dell was developing the Herald more uh, there at a place called Cross Currents. Um, it's a little history for you. I'd like to give you a little history. But before we get to the episode, I just want to say I get really depressed when the sound quality of this podcast isn't really good. And th- this episode is great, actually, because I had my microphone in my Mac Pro computer but uh, there's been a couple episodes. We just came back from Providence, and we're trying to save this one, and I hope we can. And if anybody knows uh, anything about sound, uh, and you can email me directly. We taped this one with Rick Andrews from the Magnet Reader. Amazing interview, amazing improv, and the sound was recorded really, really low. And like I'm kicking myself because usually I have the, the DAT recorder, and I – you know, I, I I didn't turn it on. So Murphy's Law was in effect because we had recorded it in two different two different ways. So we, if I had turned the data on, we would have had three different ways, and both of those ways recorded it at such a low volume you can't hear it. So uh, I'm really sad about that. And then we just recorded a great episode with uh, TJ and Dave, and uh, the sound it, it's 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 good sound, it's decent sound, but it's not at the level that I really. Uh, like to have on this podcast. So I'm really depressed about it. And again, if anyone out there has some help for me, uh, we are open to it. I am open to it because I'm just so bummed out about about both of those. Um, So uh, here it is. You're going to love this. Joel Murray is an amazing storyteller. He is so honest. Uh, And again, you know, he just he goes he's willing to go everywhere with us. Uh, And here it is. I know you're going to love it. Uh, even though there wasn't improv in it, I found this to be just so fascinating and a great episode. Here it is, the Joel Murray episode. Enjoy. Family of nine, I was in the ninth, and uh, my father was a slow eater. He was a diabetic. So the food would go around. I mean, you didn't even get food till your arms were long enough mm-hmm. to reach it as it went by. And, then, and you're uh, the youngest, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and so we ate in about 45 seconds, and then... The next 45 minutes, we're trying to get my dad to laugh with food in his mouth. You know, that was the goal in life. And uh, just the social thing of growing up in a family of nine, you have to learn to edit and, you know, not, you know, blab on or uh, hit something too often. And uh, you, you've kind of developed your own comedic style at the uh, at the table. And uh, I think that, you know, having to share a bedroom with two Three other brothers, uh, and you did not have a big house, as I remember. I no, people are amazed that you know eleven people lived in there at one point. And uh, how many bedrooms were? It? There was only really three bedrooms. Uh, some of the boys got stuck down in the basement uh, eventually. One bathroom, two bathrooms. Okay, two bathrooms, and uh, yeah, it was crazy. My sister bought the house with her husband from the family when my mother died, and they added on to it for the two of them. So they added on a big master suite for the two of them. You know, that's how small this house was. Uh, so, you know, that's that's your social skills when you've, you've got to deal with people all the time. Now, your dad dies at four. Do you have any memories besides the dinner table? When I was five, he died. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, not many, but yeah. Uh, and one of the weirder things in the world, um, 
when my father died, my brother Billy came in, and you could tell he'd been crying. And I'm like, well, what's the matter? And he looked at me, and I'm a five-year-old, and he told me that my uncle Dick Dick died, uh, Dick Brennan. And I, I just like it. And he started crying again. And I'm like, Bill, it's okay. Dick Dick he had a good life. He was an old, old man. It's all right. And so he kind of felt me out and then said, no, really, um, Dad died. Dad's gone. And, uh, you know, that, that was the first I had heard it. They had come right from the hospital. And, uh, you know, it was a horrible thing. And he, you know, left my mother and nine kids. And uh, they proceeded to, I mean, one joined the Air Force at the height of Vietnam. One joined the convent. And my brother Brian, you know, went out to St. Mary's in Moraga, about as far away as you get from that house. Just uh, How was that when they all took off and left? That was, you know... That's my earliest memories. Is you know they were they were gone, and uh, it was just the the other six. Uh, you know, it was what it was. Uh, I don't know how your mother did it because all you guys went through like St. Joe's, Loyal Academy, Regina, and then all, most of them went to college, right? Yeah, um, we all worked. We all caddied. We all helped out. We, you know, Andy worked in restaurants. Uh, he faked his IDs when he was twelve, I think, to work. Uh, at, Parker's, right there on the corner. Parker's, of the sure, now Ridgeview, Ridge something. Yeah. John, a nice plug to John, who still owns it, I believe. Yeah, John the Greek. Was that hard because um, it was such an affluent area, and you guys had to work, you know, everybody was kind of handed stuff. I grew up in Kenilworth, so work was something just for spending money. You had to do it, you know, to pay for Loyal Academy. and Northern Illinois, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, it was just... That was the way life was. You just had to work, and if you, you know, you couldn't steal money out of mom's purse because there wasn't any money in mom's purse. You know, you you open her wallet and there'd be three singles. I'm like, I can't take one of them. Whatever. Uh, I would get a twenty. Let me yeah. tell you, because I stole out of my mom's purse, and there was at least a twenty. Uh, or either that, or she just learned not to keep any cash because there were so many thieves. But uh, was it crazy in your house? It wasn't crazy. Um, there wasn't a lot of. I mean, we. We roughed each other up in a playful way, you know, but there weren't beatings, uh, and um, there wasn't a lot of yelling like, you know, big Italian families. Mm -hmm. It was all a little bit more subdued than that. Uh, it was, you know, it was a good life. I uh, I wouldn't trade it. And uh, Bill is 13 years older than you. Brian is 18 years older than you. Is that about right? That's about right, yeah. Were they more like father figures to you or brothers? Well, that's the thing. My father died... I, and all of a sudden, five guys had the ability at any time they thought to just slap me on the back of the head when I needed it. And uh, so that was good. But, yeah, Ed and Brian were very much father figures. Uh, Billy was always, you know, he was one of us. He was on the younger side, he thought. But, uh, yeah, it, and even when my dad was around, my sisters raised me. You know, they, they dressed me and, and did stuff like that. And uh, so it was... Everybody had kind of their their known jobs that they had to do, and uh, it was just the way we grew up. Um, and then in third grade, you get interested in, in acting, and can you tell me how you got your first audition? I was over at, at Ben Oak's house, uh, a friend of mine, and his mother said, Ah, Joel, it's time to go now. Uh, the boys have something to do. And I go, well, what are they doing? Well, they're going to audition for a play, so yeah, it's time to go. Bye-bye. And I'm like, well, my mom works till 5.30. Nobody's looking for me. I, I'll go with the audition. And she kind of hemmed and hawed, like, all right. And uh, I got a part in Oliver in the Wilmette Children's Theater. And uh, 
I'll never forget the moment I decided I want to be an actor, besides the fact that I'm in a play now, uh, Danny Tynan, who ended up being our next-door neighbor on Elmwood, um, came off, and he was playing the Artful Dodger. And uh, he came off, and four girls took his clothes off and put them on. And he just stood there while these four girls undressed him and dressed him again. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. And then as you go to Loyola Academy, which is high school, uh, you're captain of the football team. And you are also starring in the school musical, which, as you know, like the jocks never crossed over with the theater people. How did you make that work? I was uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost. I was a friend to everyone at, in high school. I was friend of the stoners. I was <clears throat> friend of the band guys. I, I was, you know, friend with the football players. Um, it was funny. My mom actually, well, go backwards. Um, freshman year, I was trying out for baseball. It was a two-day tryout, and I did pretty well the first day. What position did you I wanted to play third base or okay. catcher. Um, so I tried out the first day, and I did well, and I'm thinking I'm making this team. And I'm trying out the second day, and I'm lacing up my cleats, and I said, all of a sudden, all-boys Catholic school, there's all these girls on the other side of the parking lot walking Regina in. Regina girls? Yeah, Regina okay. girls, Merillac girls, right. Woodlands, whatever. And I'm like, well, what are all those girls up to? And, oh, they're, they're here. They're trying out for the spring musical. And it's like, I'll see you fuckers later. And that was it. No more baseball for me. I, uh, I went and I tried out, and I think the first one was... Guys and Dolls, and uh, I was in the chorus, and uh, by the time senior year came along, uh, my mother actually got wind that they were going to do Damn Yankees, and she bought the record, and my mom's all of a sudden playing Damn Yankees, and that's weird, and uh, the audition came up, and uh, Steve Hildebrand, who was the star of all stage and screen mm -hmm. in the, back in the day, and wildly effeminate, uh, was trying out for Joe Hardy and I was the only guy reading against them and uh, it was an audition was in the little theater there and there were girls so all the guys that were now football players were doing spring workouts so they're all you know tying up their shoes to work out and I had to audition in front of my peers in the football team and uh, Father Reuter I'll never forget was so excited that somebody's actually going to audition against Steve and you know, I, I grew up a choir boy, and I, I, I can sing, and uh, I, I got the part. I got to play Joe Were Hardy. you really in choir at St. Joe's? Uh, yeah, I stayed in the choir until Monsignor Meter made me stay in until the seventh grade because there was a big trip to Rome, 1975, the Holy Year, and uh, I was I was his guy. Uh, he liked me, and uh, I stayed in the seventh grade. I took a lot of grief for it, but I got to go to Rome for $75, we had all these bake sales and all this stuff, and the whole choir was supposedly going to go. And when it came down to it, only f three guys were signed up to go. And Monsignor Meter called my mother and said, Lucille, have him do this. Get him a passport. And uh, I got a passport, and we went, and the four of us sang for the Pope. Uh, and it was fantastic. What was that like? It was really crazy, and in retrospect, we all had our own chaperone. Like, the one guy had his mother, and the other guy had his mother, but two of us had just like choir directors. I, I had a like a choir director from St. Charles or something. And you think about it today, we're going to send you to Europe with a single, you know, would choir you, would director. Would you let your yeah. kids do that? Right. <laughs> and uh, this guy was really cool, though. And uh, he actually, one day we rented a Vespa and we blew off rehearsal and we went out to like St. Paul outside the Rome, outside the walls and we're riding around in the back of the Vespa and... Uh, it was really great. Uh, it was really a cool situation, and uh, I, I have two Vespas now. 
Is that, and then eventually, uh, uh, a couple years later, you go to Rome for Loyola. So that's the second time you... Second time. And that's where you meet, on the, a flight there, you meet Dave Pasquese. Can you tell us how you guys met? I was on, uh, you know, it was a coach seat, and uh, the guy next to me was this long-haired guy, Jeff Mayer, and he had a guitar between his knees. So his legs are kimbo, you know, and... He's taken up half of my leg room. And, uh, right, for like an eight-hour flight, right? Big flight back okay. then. I think they were like 14 hours oh, or geez. something way back then. Um, so I went to the back, and uh, I was just kind of standing and talking to the stewardess, and uh, I got a beer from her, and uh, I was just standing in the back, and in the last row there was a kind of a couple of empty seats, and I was eyeing them because I didn't really want to go sit next to the guitar man. And uh, so I start talking to this skinny guy, and uh, it's Pasquazi, and we uh, we get a couple more beers, and we get a couple more beers, and we get a couple more beers, and we start sharing with the fact, well, what do you want to do? And, and he admitted to me, well, you know, at, at some point in the back of my head, I thought it'd be, you know, kind of cool to work at the Second City, you know, ah, shut up, you're not even funny. And he says the same thing to me, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I kind of think I'd like to be in the Second City someday, too, maybe, and uh we we laughed and drank the whole way, and <clears throat> at one point we ordered more beers, and the stewardess says, "No, there's no more beer, no more." Well, we'll have a different kind of beer. No, you've drank all the beer on the airplane, and uh, like, oh, okay, well, cognac, <laughs> and we, we went to Remy Martin, I think, at that point. But uh, was we, it was it the first time you shared somebody that you wanted to work yeah, in Second City? It was the first time I had ever said it, and. Uh, I think it's because he said it first. but um, And then we got there, and he was uh, my roommate. And uh, he was fluent in Italian. He used to dig swimming pools with an all-Italian crew. Uh, I was telling him the other day that Joan Cusack lives around the corner from here. I said, she's got the coolest house. She's got a pool in the basement. He goes, yeah, I dug that pool. So that, that's a small world coincidence. Um you said you wanted to, to, to work at Second City. Had you gone and seen your brothers perform? Yeah, I saw my brothers when I was, you know, 10, 12, you know. And is that where you got the, the bug in the back of your mind that this is something I want to do? Or were you like, I don't want to follow their footsteps? I never thought I'd be that good, you mm-hmm. know. I, I never thought I'd be as good as Jim Fay or, you know, Danny Breen or any of the guys that were ahead of me. I never thought in, the, in my wildest dreams I, I could be the guy up on stage that other guys were saying, you know. I want to do that. Also, I had heard, and, and I, tell me if this is true, that you were offered the part of Danny Noonan in Caddyshack. Is that true? No, that's not true. Have uh, you heard that before? I uh, was out with my brother Brian one night, and they were having a hard time casting Spalding. And uh, Brian said, you know, you could do this. You've done, you've done the theater and everything like that. You're the right age. And, um, you know, it's just, just a spoiled rich kid. And, and you know, all the kids that we caddied for growing up. You know, when I got to Loyola... I'd see these guys like, hey, I know you. Yeah, you used to caddy for me. I'm like, yeah, fuck you. It's a different world now, pal. But uh, so, yeah, I, Brian kind of offered me Spalding, and I said, no, I don't want to be some femme actor like you guys. I'm captain of the football team. I'm going I'm to play college ball. And uh, no. And uh, in retrospect, I, I might have probably wanted to have done that, but I didn't. Was there a part of you that did want to follow their footsteps? Well, I was lost. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, when I got back from going to school in Rome, I went to Loyola Chicago here, and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do at all. I, I actually toyed with joining the Air Force, and I was training to drive a, a 303 cab. And uh, 
Pasquazi and I uh, started, we were hanging out with these girls, and these girls uh, said, we're doing a sketch show. Uh, we're going to go to do this cable show in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Do you guys want to go? And we're like, yeah. Well, that's what we do. We do sketch. And we don't. We're totally lying. And uh, You had no experience at this point, no, right? nothing. No improv, nothing. Nothing. And uh, so we went and did this sketch show, and we wrote a couple things we thought were funny as well. We did these girl scenes with them, and we did this cable show in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And right after we got back from that, I got a call from Chris Barnes, who was in the Second City yeah. and uh, ETC and whatnot. And uh, Barnes was my brother Johnny's roommate in New York. They used to work a bar, JP's, on First Avenue, where all my brothers used to hang out. It was the, the den of iniquity. And uh, Barnes says, Joel, uh, Del, Del Close is back in town. you got to take this class. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I called Pasquazi. I said, I, I think I'm going to go take this class with Del Close. And Pasquazi says, I'm in. And uh, we went, and they, they, we were working on slow comedy at that point, not going for the joke and type of thing. And uh, so he, he goes, oh, little Murray, Murray and your thin friend there, why don't, why don't you get up? And he gave us a suggestion. And the suggestion was a hangover or something like that. And so Pasquazi and I started doing this scene that we had kind of written and, you know, roughly improvising, but had some beats that were in it. But we were waking up from a just a blowout party and we find a girl's purse and we start going through the purse and it's like, oh, yeah, that was the girl we were hitting on kind of thing. And just slow as could possibly be, like two guys who just woke up. And Dell went nuts, like fabulous. I mean, you know, they didn't go for any jokes. They got some laughs, but they didn't go for anything. They took their time. Look at that. Nobody was an idiot like you, you know. Um, and so he took me outside and said, "You know, your brothers have always been very good to me, and uh, they helped me out with the IRS a while back. In fact, uh, but I want to give you a scholarship to come take this class." And uh, I was like, Fabulous. And he goes, but you know, I really like that Pasquazi, so I'll give you both a half scholarship. And uh, so we started taking the classes, and uh, we drank the Kool-Aid, and we went, you know, we, I think we had class two nights a week back then. We performed two nights a week at the I.O. And that was we, Cross Currents back then. Yeah, yeah it was Cross Currents. Uh, and then we started doing our own show, Herald Be Thy Name, at... Uh, Shuba's, it's called now. It was called Gaspar's yep. back then. And uh, then we'd also go out and improvise at the Improv Institute that was west. Way on Belmont, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we were doing it like five nights a week and uh, just living it. But you were also, Bar you were on a team, Barron's Barracudas. Right. Which, that, that was really the first team that Dell was developing the Herald more as a performance, right? Yeah. He uh, Well, he'd been teaching for a while, but he he deemed us ready to perform now and uh it was time to let the, the baby out of the but it was nest. really the early development of the the structure of an opening game three scenes a game three scenes in a game what was that like to be in on that process it was it was amazing uh an amazing time and you know barnes was there as well and mark beltsman and howard johnson and uh various other people w w came in and out but Dell would tell us to do things. He'd do exercises, and he just came up with them off out of his head and thought, well, maybe it'd be funny to have him try this. And we, you know, we were Dellites. We would do whatever he said. And I remember there was one class where he said, well, we've got 21 minutes left. 
I want you to do the structure. I want you to do the Herald and finish it in 21 minutes. And we did the whole deal, games, three scenes, three scenes, three scenes, and he held up his watch when we were, we were done. And he was 21 on the head. And uh, it, was, it was kind of a magical time. So we're still taking the classes, and we're doing our show, and one night... Uh, Joyce Sloan and a couple other people like Jeff Michelski came and saw our show at Gaspar's and we had for some reason like 70 people that night. And these are the people that could hire you yeah. in Second City at that time. So we had a big house and Joyce was like, well, who are these guys that they get 70 people for their show? And um, they uh, basically hired us all. There was an audition. There was, there was a bump in the road. Uh, strange bump. I went on, I got an agent from Dell uh, got me in Getty's, and uh, I was with the Getty's agency, and the first audition they sent me on, I went for this movie, One Crazy Summer, or Greetings from Nantucket, it was called at that point, and I went to read, to play John Cusack's buddy in the movie, and uh, the callback, they said, yeah, the callback's in Hyannis. I'm like, what? And this is the first thing I've ever auditioned for, other than, you know, high school plays. And uh, so they fly me to Hyannis, and I go to the date gate and I've got a the ticket counter and I've got a first class ticket to Hyannis. This is amazing. And Jeremy Piven comes up with his father, Byrne. Legendary actor. And Byrne is a fabulous actor, I'll yeah. tell you myself. But um, Jeremy had been in like the Goldie Hawn movie. He had been in, you know. Plus he was best friends with but John he Cusack. He was Cusack's real best, best friend. friend. Yeah. But I, I'll never forget Byrne Piven. Like, I mean, of course he doesn't have any ID. He's a, he's a child. I'm dude, I'm Burn Piven. I don't know if you know who I am. Of course you know who I am. But uh, he somehow talked him into giving Piven the ticket. And uh, on the flight there, I uh, I told Piven, uh, I was laughing at the newspaper. He said, well, what's so funny? I'm like, oh, it's just my horoscope. And it's, yeah, I'm an Aries. Everything's coming up. Roses, the world is your oyster. Wow, that's, that's just funny. What are you? Uh, well, you're a Taurus. Oh, prepare for setback. Oh, not everything is meant to be, you know, this thing. And I just made it up off the top of my head to like, try to psych him out. And I thought he'd realize I was joking. but Because you knew he had a better shot than oh, you Oh, yeah, did, right? I didn't think I would. First thing I ever did in my world, you know. Uh, and he, he's, meanwhile, has got a shaved chest because he just had to play a high schooler in a, base, you know, in a football movie. I'm like, there's no way in the world I'm going to get this. And then I go to Hyannis and I get the part. And uh, they're... Kind of like, okay, well, we're going to send you a costumer. We're going to fly you down to Boston, or, and uh, you're going to go with these costumers. I'm like, I got the part? Yeah. So, And Piven played the bad guy's best friend. So it, I guess it was going to be that way. You know, One of us was going to be the other, and I guess I was the nicer kind of guy. And uh, it was phenomenal. And there I am in Hyannis for two and a half months. Uh, Before you go to do the touring company at Second City? Right. So I go do this movie. And uh, all the other Barons Barracudas, meanwhile, have auditioned for Second City and gotten hired into the touring company. And so I come back from doing this movie. Now, do they give you shit that you're a big movie star kind of thing? A little, you know, but they're all excited because they got hired. Right. And, and they're, they're, they've got their feather in their cap. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm in with the second wave of the Barons Barracudas. And uh, I'm like, what the? Well, my people are all gone. And... Uh, and Joyce Sloan called me up and uh, called me into her office and said, oh, no, no, we hired you too. And uh, so I didn't audition for the Second City. I got hired. Uh, 
and people to this day are still bitter about that one that I got hired well, without what kind auditioning. Of, did, what kind of shit did they give you? Oh, yeah, just the people just, you know, that it was nepotism that, you know, I got in because of my brothers or whatever like that. Was that hard for you? I mean, because at this time, your brother Billy is a huge yeah. star. How do you navigate Second City? How do you navigate life with with having Bill Murray, Brian Doyle Murray as your brother? How, how do you go through life at that point? Well, at that point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember, quick side note, when I got the part for One Crazy Summer, I called my mother and she wasn't around. I tried, I didn't know, you know, have any phone numbers or anything, but I knew Billy's number by heart. And I called Billy and he right away said, you know, we always expected more of you. You don't want to do this. You don't want to be an actor. It, it sucks the life out of you. It, it's it's a horrible world. It's a personal rejection. It's, it's rejection, rejection. And he tried to t- talk me out of the part I just got. I'm like, no, I'm... I'm good, thank you. And I'm I'm thinking in my head, you're in a $10 million house that this career has given you, you know. Uh, give me a break. But. How did you feel about that? Because as you're telling me, I just feel sad. It's yeah. like, here's this guy who's achieved all this stuff, and his little brother is getting a, 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 a good break. And- yeah, well, it's... It's one of those funny things, you know. How do you how do you make a foremost authority on anything? Give them millions of dollars, and then all of a sudden they're the foremost authority on everything. You know, your life. But I uh, I ignored that. And, uh, the way you talk it? about it was Billy kind of the fuck up in the family, growing up. Billy was goofy, yeah. Right, I mean, but I mean, kind of like the troublemaker. The you were more like, okay, I did sports, I did yeah. well, I got to go sing for the Pope, and he's always kind of like. He got kicked off the baseball team, yes. stuff like that. You yeah, know, he got arrested. He did, you know, yeah. goofy things, smashed up the car, and you know, uh, but you know, he was always, always very funny, right? Up, all and uh, hysterical. But, but the way you tell me that story is like, eh, it's just Billy, you know, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. But uh, he's he's great. He's still great. So then you get. Uh, you eventually get to main stage, and you and Dave Pasquese, and does is Meadows part of this? Get Dell to uh, direct, come, actually come back because Dell had fallen out of favor at Second City for a long time. How did that happen? We staged the coup. Um, there was kind of a new, you know, regime was going to come in, and it, it, it was known, you know, Bernie wasn't directing anymore. Bernie Solins. Bernie Solins, the great Bernie. And uh, that l- group before us was like Bonnie Hunt and Steve Sheridan, Steve Assad, and uh, Kevin Crowley, Kevin Crowley, and Barb Wallace, and they all kind of moved on. And um, Pasquese and I started understudying, and then Timmy started understudying. And uh, you know, you had Aaron Freeman, and uh, he was kind of old school, right? They were you guys, were Mike that, Myers. Yeah, you were a definitely new generation because most of you had come out of studying with Dell at the, right. the Improv Olympic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Joyce Sloan was hip enough to see that this is where the world's headed and uh, this new kind of improvisation mm-hmm. and, you know, these younger guys. And that was the same with my brother Brian. And, you know, he was the new wave. Mm-hmm. They, they, before that, it was the thin ties and the suits. And right. now all of a sudden they were these long hairs and mm-hmm. the beards and, you know, lamb chop sideburns right. and stuff that swore, you know, mm-hmm. and, and didn't go to University of Chicago. Uh and so we were kind of this new wave, and um, we kind of put it to Joyce that we want to bring Dell back. And, uh, you know, he's been our mentor, and we want to bring him back. And uh, so Dell kind of said, yeah, and I want to bring my own people. And uh, so it was us, and he always liked Joe Liss. 
who wasn't really from that same no, kind of Del. No, but no one was funnier than Joe Lewis. Yeah, he was Don Knotts. He uh-huh. was hysterical, and it still is. I, I always said back in the day, he always played characters that were like 65 years right, old. Right. I said, when that guy's 65, he is never going to have a day off. He's going to uh-huh. be so good. But in the meantime, he should try to be. He play. also brought in Farley. And he brought in Farley. And uh, Farley, what a trip. Uh, and, the, and then the girls were Holly Wartell and Judy Scott. Well, you had an apartment above the, was it the smoke shop? Las Piñatas, the Mexican Las, which restaurant. Which is no longer, and I'm sorry to hear that, because it was a very good Mexican restaurant. Well, it had a lot, too much cilantro for my liking, but anyway. <laughs> so Farley lived next to you, didn't he? He had the front little apartment, and I had kind of the big one in the back. And, um, I mean, Joyce Sloan, I think, she was in with O'Brien and, you know, the guy. That the O'Brien's all owned tons of buildings Tom, and had yeah. a restaurant in, in yeah. Wall Street. They were. So I think there was no mistake that Joyce had this kid put next to me. And so I would keep an eye on him. And uh, it was my, he was my big yellow lab. It was just, it was the, he was the cutest kid. But, uh, you know, he, he peed on the floor once in a while. Uh, but it was a, a fabulous time. And, you know, we had a job where we got off at 1, we'd close the 2 o'clock bar, we'd close the 4 o'clock bar, we'd come back to my apartment, and then people would go to Farley's apartment after my apartment. You know? Did you, because I had limited experience with him at the Improv Olympic, I, you never really got to know him. Did he ever knock on your door and you got to see the real Chris Farley? Oh, all the time. All the time. And what was the real Chris Farley? He was a real student of comedy. I mean, he, he memorized whole movies, mm-hmm. and he used to torment me spouting out lines of my brother's movies and he'd make me guess which one it was from and like i don't wear the buffalo robe no and he would get mad at me for it kind of thing i used to make him sit in the same wicker chair in my apartment because he couldn't stain it he was he was pig pen he was constantly dirty and uh after a while the the carpeting got a stain uh from (laughs) what came off the wicker chair but uh he was I, i saw the real chris a lot and he was a very sweet guy and uh Maybe he was afraid of the dark. He just he did not like to go to sleep until the sun was coming up, and uh, he, he was a trip. Uh, I, I mean, I could talk about him forever. If you want. Do you remember the day that he died? Do you remember where you were? I don't remember where I was. No, I don't remember exactly where I was when I heard. Mm, no, I mean, I mean, no, I don't. Um. And then, so you're, you do two shows at Second City on the main stage. What was that process working with Dell versus doing the Herald? Because Dell had the reputation of not finishing it, and then Bernie Sounds would come in the following week to, to figure to, to put a running order together. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, whatever backtracking, but the first time I ever improvised with Farley. Um, He's brought up to do the set, and uh, at this point, Dell's hanging around, and uh, some of the people that aren't going to stay in the new show would go, and then other people would come improvise with us. Um, and the first time I ever improvised with Farley, I'm just eyeing him up, and uh, I go, "We got the suggestion of a drunk tank. I'm your dad. I'm picking you up at the drunk tank. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah great. Yeah." Uh, and so we went out and improvised this father and son scene where the father, you know, turns out is as big of a drunk as the son. And it was just this wonderful story about being Irish drunks kind of thing. And we improvised it. It was, I don't know, three and a half pages. Uh, and Dell came backstage and said, that was perfect. Now script that. that. That's done. But we thought Dell was going to be this Messiah director. And he wasn't. <laughs> he uh 
he didn't do a whole lot, and we uh, we didn't work uh, on some things as much. And he, you know, every night it was, well, you girls need a scene, so put another scene up in the set. There, and then all of a sudden, as we got closer and closer, uh, we started to put together a running order and previews. And he did it ass backwards, where we started with a song and ended with three blackouts. And he, he likened it to a train running into a wall. Uh, that's what I'm going for. And um, but he didn't really craft it as much as we thought. You know, he was going to do everything for us. He he kind of left us on our own, and uh, that was uh, that was kind of fun. But uh, we were a little bit disappointed. And uh, he didn't direct the, the next show. He just did that one, which was Nate Herman. And I didn't see the show, but Nate is a great director. It was that the show with Whale Boy in it. Yeah. And would you have said that was a better show? Oh, it was a, it was a fabulous show. It was really good. Um, the first show had its its, its uh, some good scenes, but uh, that Nate Herman show was was brilliant, and it was really fun to work with Nate. And he was really a craftsman. And uh, you know, we wrote s- s- amazing songs. And uh, I well, just, Nate has a musical background. Yeah, I'm just gonna say that he brought that to the table. And uh, we would throw something out, and the next day he would come back, and he'd have lyrics that he wrote. I, I couldn't sleep. I had to write it down. I couldn't. Oh, look at it. You know, uh, I mean, we threw away stuff that we didn't put in that show that was fantastic. I mean, it, it was it was really good, really fun. So during that run of that show, it's 1990. You get Grant, which is a, a, a sitcom follows Cheers. Uh, big opportunity. How did that come about? Uh, that was another one where they couldn't find the guy. They uh, had gone to network and uh, they couldn't find the millionaire's idiot son. You know, I likened it to Jethro Bodine with an education and good clothes. But um, it was a fun part, and I I flew out there uh, and auditioned for it. And uh, Bonnie Hunt was already on the show, and she said, you know, I know this guy that would be. He's kind of an idiot. He might be good. Uh, and I got the part, and you know, I'm, I'm working with Michael McKean, and all my scenes are with John Randolph and John Neville. I mean, the, the guys had a hundred years of experience between the two of them, and here I, I kind of got hired off the stage at Second City one night, and uh, yeah, a lot of things happened at the same time right then. Uh, I got engaged, I got married, I you know changed cities, uh, had a kid, uh, you know, it all all happened very quickly. And that was that's like twenty five years ago, right? Because you've been in L A. about twenty five, twenty six years, I think. And yeah. you've had just a great career. I mean, you've done, I mean, uh, Darman Greg, Still Standing, Shameless, Mad Men, and just, uh, I mean, go to IMDb. Do you ever go to check your IMDb? Well, yeah, I'd okay. like to see if the new things come in uh, that I, you know, I've done. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've been very lucky, and uh, I've, you know, I've always had the motto that you know, why not me. I, I, I got that Cusack part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything could happen. Uh, why not me? So I've, I've always kind of had a positive attitude, and uh, I've never been afraid to audition. And I, I just keep plugging away. Is it easier to like? Because I always think to myself, I attend hundreds of excuses. But you come from a family that everybody's been working in show business, and you're like, if they could do it, I could do it. It's, it's in my. It's in my. It's, they're in, it's in my genes. I, I I don't necessarily think about that as much. Uh, for instance, I whatever I was on Darm and Greg for five years, mm-hmm. and uh, three years into it, Chuck Laurie comes up to me and goes, "Wait a minute, you're Bill Murray's brother?" And I'm like, "Yeah, 
it, it he, he just blew, it blew his mind. He, mm-hmm. he had no idea, and it kind of like wow. I I sometimes think I get these parts because I'm his brother, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Turns out no, not at all. I you know you got to go out and earn it yourself. And uh, I always said that you go to an audition, you don't got Bill Murray in your pocket. You mm-hmm. got to you got to wow the room. You got to you know nail the part, whatever. And uh, he hasn't ever really given me any work i've given him jobs <laughs> i've gotten billy work the, the, the comedy central show comedy central show we uh, we did a, a thing in uh ireland mm-hmm. uh i hired him for mm-hmm. uh would you ever call your brother up and say hey look i read this script my agent said i'd like to read for this or why don't you just give me the part uh i would probably never do it i you know i auditioned for scrooged uh i you know um I have people that give me scripts all the time that want me to get Billy to read them, you mm-hmm. know. So I, I read them and decide if they're worthy mm-hmm. to be sent, passed along. And I'm I'm really a little bit tired of, hey, you know, there's a great part of this mailman in this movie. If you could get your brother to play the lead, you could be the mailman. And, and now people are saying, you know, uh, you could direct this if you get your brother to star in it. And I'm like, yeah, uh, whatever. Maybe you should just have, uh, like, a fee. You know, like, okay, great, I'll look at it. I'm not going to guarantee it's going to my brother. It's $25,000. Yeah. Well, just for the reading fee, that's a good plan. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know that there's some people, because they're able to get a hold of Billy, have gotten producer credits and, and gotten paid just because they got Billy to return the phone call. Mm-hmm. So. You do, you have directed, you've directed uh, sitcoms and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Would that be something you'd like to do? Is, how would you feel directing your brother in something? I, I, I directed him in the Sweet Spot, our, our golf show uh-huh. for Comedy Central. I, I think it would be interesting. I, he, uh, he's got a different way about doing things. Um, doesn't necessarily memorize the, the lines, you know. Well, he, I've heard that he, he you he give him a script and he... It's he rewrites just, it. Yeah. And he, he knows what he's doing. Right. Um, we were in Charleston, and he went, and Danny McBride wanted him to do a part on his uh, show. I think it's down in, uh, down, uh, no, eastbound, eastbound and down? down no, yeah. he's got a new one, I think, called Vice Principals. Okay. And uh, he wanted Billy to, you know, do this part. And uh, so I'm driving with Billy in South Carolina. He goes, you know, there's this guy I should go see. Yeah, let's go. And uh, we go to the studio, and he's in the middle of filming, kind of. And, uh, yeah, you know, if you got a couple of minutes. And Billy went through the entire script. He had rewritten all kinds of lines. And, like, this chick should say this here. Instead of, this should be inverted. She should say this half of the sentence first. And then, and he had it all written down. And uh, Billy was like, you know, I could do this for all your scripts if you like. You know, because I, I had a good time. I liked this one. And uh, Danny McBride... It's just looking at me going, Bill Murray's rewriting my freaking skip. This is amazing. You know? But yeah, he, uh, he brings a lot to the table. Do you, when you, and certainly on, on sitcoms, it's, you're pretty limited, but on other projects, do, uh, do you, how do you use your improv? Um, like on something like Mad Men, it's Shakespeare. You don't change a word. Mm-hmm. You don't change a comma. But on sitcoms, you know, you, you do it in front of a live audience. And um, I know, I've been rehearsing it during the week you know which jokes are kind of so so and i'll have another one in my pocket in mind and uh if i got a good take in the first take in front of the audience the second time around i'll just throw it out and uh it it freaks out the writers and the producers but uh the audience goes nuts because you've you know come up with something on the do you ever have you ever gotten shit for that like 
them come back, you know, just just do what we wrote. Yeah. No, I've gotten it a couple times, but generally uh, I... So it's it the works. lesson is, if you have a good line, you better make sure you get a good laugh yeah. or you're going to get shit. Right, right. Let's talk about Mad Men because that's really, that's really something that was a great part for you and, and, and it, it showed a different side of, of you. Mm-hmm. How did you get that? There's a story that you went and you auditioned and they, you, they weren't even looking for somebody like you. They were originally, it was written for a friend of Matt Weiner's. He uh, wanted, the executive producer. Yeah, he wanted this friend of his that he hadn't seen in years to do the part. And uh, so they had the guy audition in New York. And um, Matt was like, no, not, what is he doing? You know, why isn't he just being him? And uh, so they gave, gave him some notes and did a second audition. And Matt was, was just, I, I got this from the casting agents. That told me the story, but uh, Matt was just couldn't figure out how this guy couldn't be himself. And uh, then I came in and read, and uh, I'd seen the show a couple times already, and I loved the show. And uh, I showed up, I think, season one, episode six, so some had already aired. And uh, I went in to read, and I saw this shorter, not short, but I, I saw this bald fellow that uh, I thought was a buddy of mine. I thought, oh, isn't that great? He got a, a writing gig. And I'm re- I read for like a dozen people. <clears throat> and um, so I read it one time, and this guy stands up, and it's not my buddy, because my buddy's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and it's this little guy, and he comes over, and uh, he gave me a couple notes, and uh, um, and he just he stared at me and goes, you know, you've got this sadness about you that is just, it's really... It's really good. You've got this sadness. And I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm happily married. Uh, kids are good, I think. And he goes, no, 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 you got this sadness. And I could see the casting agent uh, out of the corner of my eye shaking her head, no. And right. I'm like, you're right, yeah, no, I'm, I got that sad thing in spades. You're right, right you're right, yeah. And uh, I, I got the part. What do you think he was picking up when he said that? I don't know, but he had an amazing ability in his casting of, mm-hmm. of all the people that he took, like... If he picked somebody that was a jerk on that show, in real life they were a jerk. Uh, they might, in real life, be a philanderer. In real life, been a horrible drunk. You know, and but he nailed those people. I mean, the, the casting was really, really good. And uh, and your character- I guess I'm sad, but I'm not. You're not. No. Okay. Uh, I'm sad all the time. Uh, but isn't don't don't we want a little sadness in our comedy? Oh yeah, I think. Mm. Uh, so yeah, how do you tap in? You're not. Uh, how do you tap into that then? Uh, I don't. I think I inherently just look sad. <laughs> um, how do you tap into it? I mean, I've I've had some bad things happen in my life. I, uh, I can go back to you know thinking about my mother crying in bed. You know, trying to figure out how she's going to raise all these kids, how she's going to keep the bills paid. You know. How do you think she did it? I don't know. Whenever, whenever I'm having a bad day, I literally think about how did that woman get out of bed every day? You know, in Chicago, when it's five below zero, how the hell did she go out and work for 20 years after she had been pregnant for 20 years, you know? I, I, she, she amazes me. So I, I think about her, and that just kind of gives me strength. Um, the character that you played... Freddie Rumson. Right. Frederick von Rumson. What a great arc. He is a... Uh, falling down, peeing his pants, drunk. And then they throw this thing, he gets sober, and the character goes to AA. 
Yeah. How do you approach the drunk Freddy to the sober Freddy? Uh, I don't know. I just kind of played Freddy. Um, the other actors on that show were so good that you just, you had to come with some game. You know what I mean? John Were Hamm- you nervous before? I mean, because they are really good. They're really good. I, I remember the first scene I ever did, I did with Elizabeth Moss. Uh-huh. And um, I'm doing this basket of kisses scene. And I'm staring at her going, wow, she's really pretty in person. She's really pretty. Wow, she's good. Oh, fuck, I got a line coming up here. God, I hope I remember it. And uh, One of those out-of-body yeah, actors experiences? Just, just, like yeah, I've seen her on TV? A nightmare. But... Uh, they, everybody was so good. And John Hamm, you know, just photographic memory, n- never frumped a, a line in his life, you know. And you, you just got to you gotta bring it. You got to show up to that kind of thing. And uh, Freddie was just a fun character to play. And, you know, like the six-month leave episode, after he wets the pants, he goes out with uh, John Slattery and John Hamm, and they go out on the town at this underground club. Well, we, we started drinking late that night and uh i mean real alcohol yeah not not show alcohol there was some writer girls that brought some booze and uh so we started hitting the booze and um by the time he walks me to the cab and puts me in the cab at the end and i I had great lines i mean the words were so good that's the other thing you know it it was hard to be bad when the words are that good but i said you know if i don't go to that office every day who am i and uh he takes me to the cab and says you know good night uh freddie and i said goodbye down and uh, I thought I was done on the show. You know, I thought that would be it. But uh, no, turns out I just took it. How, how did you take it when they said, okay, we're bringing you back. The guy's, gonna, the guy's sober now. And he's not where He's freelancing. He's no longer at the, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, I was excited to get the call. Um, and I, he told me I wasn't done. Uh, after Who told was, you? Matt, Matt Weiner. Yeah. He didn't tell me anything else. He said, well, you're not done. And uh, Did you believe him? No, after okay. a year, I was pretty sure I'm pretty sure I'm done. Right, you know, and I'm I was coming off a of Shameless, and uh, my character on Shameless, you know, it was the same scenario where oh, we got a really good episode for you coming up, and I didn't get my script delivered though. Oh yeah, you got to get your script from John Wells, or you got to get your script from Matt Weiner. So you, when you know that the script didn't come to the house, you know that oh no, here we go again. Because Seamus, you were in the pilot, I remember, and then it was a while before we saw you in the show, and I didn't even know from the pilot if you were, you know, you 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 broke into the house. The character uh, was a cop, right? Was no, I worked. Uh, I worked at like a transportation place. No, I was a cop. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. And I'm like, well, Eddie Jackson. Right. Um, yeah, and I ended up going out in an ice hole, committing suicide. Mm-hmm. I, I was in, I was sprinkled throughout the first season. I, okay. Uh, I, I don't know if I did nine or okay. eight episodes. Of, I was in pretty many in okay. the first season, but that was it. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was fun. And we did the pilot originally was Allison Janney was my wife. Mm-hmm. And she was fabulous to work with, really wonderful. And then she had another gig, and I had a, couldn't do it. She couldn't. So they brought in Joan Cusack, and uh, they, you know, reshot all those scenes with Joan. And uh, Joni got the Emmy this year for that role. But she she's amazing, just really goofy, really fun. So when they say, "Okay, now the guy's sober," now how do you how do you approach that character? Well, I stopped drinking during scenes, so that was good. <laughs> I was method on the uh, one end. Good, good. So I, I went method on the other end. Uh, I 
you know, Ham was uh, at his drunkiness, you know, drunkenness, drunk, drunkenest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I paralleled that, and uh, it was, you know, it's kind of easy to play sober when you're sober. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I had some good lines in that where I said, you know, you, you never have to take another drink again. Mm-hmm. And I've had AA people come up to me repeatedly and say, you know, it was so great to see you say that, to see somebody say that on television. That was so great. And, you know, it's often I've got a cocktail in my hand. I'm like, you know, not really sober. Just right. I was acting. Right. Uh, but uh, it was it was big, that uh, that Cyrano de Bergiac thing I got to do at the end there. That was really fun. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole watch promo well, because I remember uh, when yeah. I think when you were first on the show, I was out in L.A. It was at Finner's house, and you were like really proud of because everybody was saying, "Oh, Joel, you were great on Mad Men." And I got the sense that this was a part that you were really proud of. Well, I, I mean, it's uh, television history that show. Mm-hmm. That, that show was the bee's knees, as mm-hmm. uh, Dell would say. Uh, yeah, I was proud of it, and you know. Coming from playing buddies and idiot buddies, you know, kind of things on sitcoms to all of a sudden get a couple of dramatic roles. And uh, that was, you know, that's something, we, you know, when you're with Finn and Keckner, you're like, hey, you know, I'm a dramatic actor too, pal. I, uh, I'm not just a sitcom guy, you know. So, yeah, I was, I was very proud. And I still am the work I did on what that. Is the, what, is the, what part do you think is your, your favorite to do or the thing that's the closest to who Joel Murray really is? Well, that's a good one. Uh, I don't know. I, there's been a lot of them. Uh, I really liked the, the part I had on Love and War with Jay Thomas and Annie Potts. I, I played a garbage man. Um, what did but, you love about it so much? Uh, that was written by Diane English, so those were good words, mm-hmm. too. Uh, they were often really long spiels, which you would find out later were going to be edited. And it's like, why didn't we edit it before I had to memorize all that stuff? But uh, that character was very close to who I am, I think. Which uh, is... I don't know. I'm just kind of a I'm relatively nice guy, mm-hmm. uh, trying to pretend I'm brighter than I am, and uh, just trying to get through life and, and get the girl, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> I got the girl in real life, but uh, I never did on that show. Yeah, I did on that show actually. I was the 30 year old virgin before uh, Steve Carell. There was an episode where it came out that I was 30, and I, mm-hmm. I had never been with a woman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was a fun episode. Uh, was it because there was a naiveness to that character yeah. that you like? Yeah. Would you say that there's a naiveness to you? Yeah, I uh, I kind of go through life with my eyes open and uh, excited about learning stuff every day because I, I forget a lot every day, too. So sometimes I just learn the same thing again. And now you're traveling around the country with Whose Line Is It Anyways? And uh, for someone who's had so accomplished in long form, what is it like for you to do short form? It's... It, Completely the other end of the spectrum, and uh, it's really quick. And, and coming from slow comedy and long form, uh, it's real quick in games. And it—it—it uh, it, it was a hard adjustment when I first started doing it. I was pretty nervous, and uh, now I, I just kind of have fallen in. I've been doing it for three years now with them, and they—they they just like the void I fill, you know. Which is I, I'm just kind of the everyman in mm-hmm. a lot of the things where you know. Greg Proops is wildly super intelligent, and, and Styles is hysterical. Amazing. He's yeah. just—I don't know how he does it. It's not like he's wildly educated or anything like that. He just knows comedy. He just knows what everything needs right then, 
and Jeff Davis is phenomenal and makes up the songs and uh, he's really bright too. And uh, so I think sometimes the audience just kind of sides with me a little bit because, yeah, that's how I think, you know, not, not, I don't know anything about the 14th century, you know, whatever, but you, I just go out there and be honest. And uh, sometimes that just works. And when you, uh, uh, you, you go out there, do people recognize you from Mad Men and Shameless? And nothing matters whatsoever because mm-hmm. they're all huge fans of Whose Line Is it Anyway. And I'm not. So on, the show is bigger. I'm, I'm not on the TV show, so I'm I'm nobody. We we get done, you know. Afterwards, it's the Ryan Styles taking pictures with everybody, and signing autographs, and uh, you know the other Proops is signing autographs, taking pictures. Davis and you know. I just stand over in the corner, I'm smoking, waiting for the van to leave, you know, kind of thing. And once in a while, people will come and get a picture with me because, well, I was the other guy in the show, so we might as well get all four, you know. But, yeah, no, they, they're they not Mad Men fans or whatever. Yeah, they just... we got to wrap this up. Thank you so much. And we end each podcast with the same question. What one piece of advice would you give an improviser starting out today? Stage time. It's all about getting up and being on the stage and uh, find the right group of people and hang out with them and uh, use everybody, you know, use all your friends for uh, the, all the comedy you can make out of it. And when we started, I was saying, we did it five, six nights a week and uh, we hung out constantly. We we closed bars together. We hung out all the time. We went to movies together. And What is important about hanging out with, with people when you're starting out like that? Because you all of a sudden have this collective mind, and uh, you, you've you got references that you've experienced together, and uh, you can bring that out on stage. One of the best tips my brother Bill ever said, and uh, I don't know why I'm going to talk about my brother Bill again, but um, he said, you know, I talk about myself plenty. You know, I don't have to, I, this is coming from a guy who just talked about himself for an hour, but he said, I talk about myself plenty. When you meet people, find out what they do. Pick their brain. Find out what that you know, actuary, you know, what is that? What do you actually do with that thing? And find out what they do with their life. So then when you've got to improvise a scene and somebody says you're an actuary, you know what the hell you're talking about. But he said, you can, why talk about yourself all the time? Find out what other people have to say and what they do and what their world is, and that's going to make you a better improviser, a better person. Joel Murray, thank you for being our guest on Improv Nerd. That was great. That was great. Okay. Huh, and it's noon. Good, good. That was really good. That was amazing, Joel. Th- that last thing, I'm glad I got that in. Yeah. Because uh, that was what Billy taught me years ago, and it's so true. Why talk about me anymore? <laughs> 50 minutes. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. I want to thank our guest, Joel Murray, uh, for being so honest and so insightful. And I love that piece of advice his brother Bill gave him at the end of the episode where he said, basically, it's better to be interested than to be interesting. Listen to people uh, because you can learn a lot. That was a great piece of advice. 
I'd like to thank uh, Ben Caprero for stepping in for Dan Schiffmacher. Ben uh, really helped out here and put this episode together. He put the last episode together. So thanks to Ben Caprero. Uh, also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes, The Artist Low Comedy, here in Chicago, just go to my website, jimmycorain.com. There's all everything Jimmy. All Jimmy is there on my website, including my blogs and my book. And if you want to sign up for the newsletter, that's a good place to do it, jimmycorain.com. Also, we need your support in, in so many different ways, but on social media certainly would help. Go to uh, the Improv Nerd fan page and like us because it helps with my low self-esteem. Go to our Twitter page, Improv underscore Nerd. And please, oh, I love our YouTube channel, and that's Improv Nerd Podcast, all one word. You'll see clips from the live shows. We're lucky enough to be part of a podcast collective called feralaudio.com, some of the most innovative and hilarious podcasts out there. So go to feralaudio.com. I'd like to thank our sponsor today, Hotel Lincoln, but more importantly, I'd like to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember... Walk, don't run. Oh yeah, Jimmy's a nerd. He's a nerd. Oh yeah, Jimmy's a nerd. He's a nerd. Oh yeah, Jimmy's a nerd. He's a nerd. Oh yeah, Jimmy's a I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. 